From Hudson Institute's Pennsylvania Avenue headquarters in Washington, D.C., this is Policy Talk. I'm your host, Brian Blake. We're glad that you found Policy Talk, Hudson Institute's new podcast. While Hudson has long made available the audio from our public events on the Hudson Events podcast, we've heard from many of you desiring a more traditional interview format podcast that delves into the complicated foreign and domestic policy issues facing the United States and our allies. Policy Talk seeks to answer that call. In our regular episodes, we'll have conversations with Hudson's deep bench of scholars and experts seeking new perspectives, pragmatic solutions, and informed commentary. We hope you'll subscribe to our regular episodes and tell your friends. For our first episode, we thought it would be useful to give you a little history of Hudson Institute and talk about the role that think tanks play in the world of government and policy formulation. There can be no better guest than one of Hudson's longest-serving employees, our president and CEO, Ken Weinstein. Ken has been with the Hudson Institute since 1991 and was appointed CEO in June 2005 and president and CEO in 2011. He's a graduate of the University of Chicago. He has a graduate degree from uh, Sciences Po in Paris. Got my French right there, Ken. Thanks. Um, (laughs) And uh, that, that degree was in Soviet and Eastern European studies. And he has a PhD in government from Harvard University. Ken has been awarded Knighthood in Arts and Letters by the French Ministry of Culture and Communication, serves as the chairman of the Broadcasting Board of Governors, and regularly appears as a guest on both American and European media. So, Ken, we're really uh, glad to have you on this inaugural episode of Policy Talk. Brian, delighted to be here, honored, and wishing this new series lots of success. Excellent. Um, so for those, let's start out, for those who are new to Hudson Institute, uh, tell us a little, not a little, give us a little bit of the history. It has an interesting history. It's been around for a long time. Um, it's had stints both here and, and in the Midwest with its headquarters. So kind of walk us through that path. Yeah, Hudson Institute really has a unique history. I mean, it came about during, at sort of the height of the thermonuclear age, uh, uh, founded by a man named Herman Kahn. Herman Kahn was probably the best-known public intellectual of his day. He was a man of uh, immense insight, immense intellectual appetite, immense physical appetite, I should note as well. He was uh, constantly battling uh, serious weight uh, issues. He was a, Herman was, uh, was an incredible human being. He grew up, uh, he was born in Bayonne, New Jersey, uh, in a Yiddish-speaking family. His parents got divorced when he was a baby. They moved out to Los Angeles. He grew up above his mother's grocery store in Fairfax in Los Angeles. And uh, since ever since he was a child, he had just an absolutely photographic memory, loved to read history, loved to read science, uh, you know, came from essentially an, uh, an uneducated milieu, and then went on to uh, do his undergraduate work at uh, UCLA, and uh, really fell in love with, uh, with math and uh, uh, was a star pupil, got drafted into the Army during World War II and got the highest score ever on the Army IQ test. He served in the Signal Corps in, Bur- in Burma, went back, started graduate work at Caltech uh, in physics, and uh, Herman, he, he, just, he had this ability to understand the direction of science, technology, uh, he had this knowledge of history and strategy. He loved reading Roman history. Uh, and he was able to, to sort of bring all of these things together. But when he was, so when he was a graduate school at, uh, 
at uh, Caltech, he eventually decided that uh, he had to leave. He was going to go do something else with his life, and he decided to go off and uh, become a real estate developer, which is which is kind of an interesting which, thing. As a Californian, that would have been a good time to to be a real estate developer. I'm sure there's a lot of opportunity. Yeah, no, and Herman, and he had this ability, he had this immense creative ability, which I think as a strategist, which the great real estate developers have, they can look at a piece of of just of, of undeveloped land, undeveloped territory, sort of see, sense immediately what its immense upside could be, what the what the risk would be for uh, creating some sort of a new uh, building or a new community. I, you know, it, it, it really takes community, sort of a, a vision and an ability to see far ahead in the future and imagine things that don't exist when you look at, a, you know, a piece of forest or you look at a, a, an area around a swamp. Uh, and, and, and so Herman was about to do this, decided he wanted to do this. He had to really support his mother, and he had a sibling who was quite ill. And so, but before he went on to uh, to uh, go off into real estate development, his best friend from childhood, a man named Sam Cohen, later known as the uncle of the hydrogen bomb, told Herman, look, I started working at this amazing organization here in, Los Ange- in Santa Monica called the Rand Corporation, which had just... Another, a big think tank just set up by the Air Force to deal with uh, the challenges of the new era of American global leadership, the challenges of the Cold War, the challenges of the strategic bomber, and um, the cha- all the challenges that arose in, that, in, that early, in the early era of the nuclear age. And so Herman came in, spent a, spent a day at RAND, and just fell in love. He, he met some of the people who went on to be the world's great strategists of the Cold War period, and Herman never looked back. Uh, and so Herman spent, I guess, about a decade at Rand. And uh, uh, and it was there that he sort of began to flourish as a thinker and brought a lot of the techniques that he would later bring to Hudson. The use of scenario planning for defense policy, trying to imagine. He always had this belief that in order to prevent a nuclear war, you had to imagine how it would be fought, what the consequences might be, and what you could do to prevent further escalation. Uh, he, Her, Herman always believed in thinking the unthinkable, trying to imagine if a nuclear exchange would happen between the United States and the Soviet Union, look at what the consequences would be. And um, Herman wrote a book called On Thermonuclear War. He published in the late 1950s based on a series of lectures at, the Princeton, at Princeton University that put into the public sphere scenarios about what a potential nuclear exchange would look like. And Rand's biggest funder purportedly, the Air Force wasn't too thrilled with this, and Herman decided that he needed to go to, to another institution. Or, uh, and, and when he sat down, he thought about it. He decided, look, I, I'm going to form my own think tank. And I'm going to bring together the best of what Rand had to offer, which was uh, creativity, thought at the intersection of, of uh, technology, policy, strategy, history, uh, bring together uh, very unconventional minds to focus on the big problems of the day. And, and Herman early on sensed that uh, academics and others had this tendency towards what he called trained in capacity, that you study a particular discipline, and by studying that discipline, you can only regurgitate, say, what your thesis advisors have told you or what the people trained in the field are taught to think. And he saw Rand was going in that direction of trained in capacity. And so he went off and founded, wanted to found a think tank that was like Herman, big, bold, unconventional, outside the box that would get the big minds together to think about the big issues. And he 
decided to do this and to head back east. And in July of 1961, Herman Kahn, along with a young Harvard Law graduate named Max Singer and a noted New York lawyer, Oscar Rubhausen, the three of them founded Hudson Institute. Herman was the was obviously the alpha and the omega of Hudson in those years, uh, up until his untimely death in 1983. And Herman had this ability to bring people together. Herman was no ideologue. Herman was not a he was not a conservative. He was in those days when the institute started out. He was very much a Kennedy liberal. Cold, cold. He was certainly a cold warrior, a Kennedy liberal. Very concerned about the rise of of Soviet power. Uh, and very interested in figuring out ways that uh, you could uh, do as much as you can to prevent a nuclear war from being fought. So Hudson Institute, I, you want to give the history of the name? He, he started at, at uh, Hudson sure. on Croton. And, uh, yeah, it was Herman. The Institute was started at Croton on Hudson, which sorry, is about 45 minutes, 45 minutes north of New York City. And, in, and uh, the Institute actually took over what had been a sanatorium, which is the source of many jokes about the place ever since, <laughs> you know, and uh, and it was an amazing, uh, oh, God, probably 20-acre facility on uh, Quaker Ridge Road in uh, Croton on Hudson, overlooking the Hudson River. Beautiful complex with, uh, I think, seven houses. People lived on campus in those days, and the idea was very much, it wasn't quite a monastic existence. People had families, but the idea was that... Uh, Minds, people were brought together, and they spent time at meals talking through ideas. And people, and, and Herman had this notion: you put engineers to work on uh, economic problems, you put economists to work on engineering problems, uh, and and by bringing, by sort of doing a 360 on any given issue, by looking at all sorts of different disciplines, you can transcend the disciplines and come up with a creative approach. And Herman's view was always that, and it's still something that very much shapes us today that. There is a tendency in Washington and in New York and the major capitals, financial sectors, to sort of assume that if you're in a crisis, that that crisis is something that is a given and isn't going away. And so Herman was always skeptical about about this. And he was, for that reason, Herman never believed that uh, the Arab oil embargo, which led to the 73 oil crisis, the oil crisis was a permanent fact of human life. Herman believed that... The human human capital really was the the great source of all wealth, uh, and that uh, uh, human ingenuity was such that uh, natural resource we could extract natural resources almost infinitely from the from the earth just by coming up with new means to extract them. And so, at the time of the oil, oil embargo, Herman had a an extraordinary idea, and uh, spent months months studying it, and decided to with support from American oil companies and people at the U.S. government to go visit uh, Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada because Herman saw that Canada had these extraordinary tar sands in Alberta and elsewhere from which a significant amount of uh, petroleum could be extracted. And Herman really believed that we could completely turn the energy crisis around within a few years by going to Canada, you know, taking advantage of the tar sands, working with the Canadians on this. In the end, the Canadians were worried about the environmental impact of this. So it never happened. But that very much was Herman's ethos, was that you'd be on the verge of a, you'd be, you know, right before, right before the darkest moment, you'd sort of see a solution to a problem that seemed unsolvable. And Herman, this was Herman's view about the crisis of uh, pollution, uh, the crisis of, of overpopulation. There were, there were many people in the, in the uh, 60s and 70s worried about 
pushing the limits to growth, worried about overpopulation, overpollution, lack of natural resources. And Herman said, nonsense uh, that there's a green revolution going on in ag- agriculture and that uh, the people of Africa 20 years from now are going to be better fed than you can imagine, that uh, vitamin A-infused rice will take care of uh, significant poverty problems in India, that over the long term, uh, mankind is in the midst of what Herman called the Great Transition, where all the world becomes modern. He knew that there were atavist forces fighting against this, but uh, Herman always believed you had to take the big picture, the big look, and don't get into a crisis and assume that uh, the crisis is permanent. And so uh, it's how he thought about the challenge of nuclear weapons. It's how he thought about it was one of the reasons Herman was a big proponent of civil defense. He thought that uh, if we convinced the Soviets that uh, a nuclear attack on the United States wasn't going to do as much harm as they thought it would because we'd have a vast enterprise of civil defense shelters to protect our population, that would be very helpful. And Herman worked closely with the Kennedy administration on this through the Cuban Missile Crisis and beyond. Um, Herman, so he, he took this longer-term, optimistic, guarded optimistic perspective based on the ability to transcend the kind of cliches that were coming out of the conventional wisdom. And he and he obviously had a great belief in human ingenuity. And, and you know, we, we talk about him often as a futurist, uh, as someone who, uh, you know, optimistically looked at human progress and, and is kind of the people stuck in the in the in the old paradigms um, thought there were limitations, as you just as you just give great examples of. Um, he saw past that. I mean, some of the examples, I, I know you've given many of them, but the rise of Japan uh, was something that he sure. predicted. Uh, it, again, in the energy crisis, it's, it's fascinating now. Here we are 40 years later, and, and those tar sands are producing oil in, in amazing ways. Yeah. Um, so, no, yeah, look, Herman, so Herman, yeah, on the, let me say on the energy side, so Herman was a, Herman's last book was called uh, The Coming Boom. It was published in 1983. He wrote it really in 1982. And there's a chapter on natural resources in the book, and I almost fell out of my seat because uh, I read it maybe five years ago, 2013, 2014, and uh, Herman said that the 21st century will be the century of natural gas in the United States because of the increasing ability to use unconventional means of extraction, such as hydraulic fracturing. Uh, and Herman was dead right. I mean, let's yeah, yeah. not say that all of his predictions were correct, but Herman predicted the uh, interactivity of computers, something like the Internet. He obviously predicted mobile phones, uh, predicted, uh, predicted, as you mentioned, the rise of Japan. He was doing a study for the Pentagon in 1962 on whether Japan would develop nuclear weapons, and Herman noticed something that uh, he noticed that as he did his extrapolations, the Japanese economy was growing at 8% a year, would continue to grow at 8% a year for the next, for the foreseeable future and that by the mid-1970s, Japan would be the world's second-largest economy. And so Herman really became a prophet of what uh, Japan's future would look like, and he became an extraordinary, almost a cult figure in Japan, uh, new prime minister as well from the mid-1960s until his death in 1983, wrote best-selling books, was considered a guru to the Japanese corporate world, and was someone, even today, I hear, I mean, I meet older Japanese people in my travels there, they, they talk about the, the the lack of confidence Japan felt at the end of uh, even a decade after World War II, 15 years after World War II, and Herman gave them this immense confidence to see their way to the future. But Herman was no Pollyanna. He saw that Japan had serious structural economic problems, thought that South Korea and Singapore actually offered more sustainable models for economic growth. And he, just as he worked with the Japanese, he worked closely with uh, President Park in South Korea 
and work closely with Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore to help transform those economies. And so that was the kind of work Herman did. It was unique. It was visionary. It was long-term. It was often collaborative. And he wrote a book in 1967, the year 2000, which offered many of the predictions that uh, later came in. It really was sort of taking that scenario planning approach that he had done on nuclear issues and just and on defense issues and applying it to um, to, 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 to economics, yeah. and which uh, and Herman was an amazing visionary, but uh, uh, much as he was a visionary, and Neil Pickett, who's done a wonderful history of Hudson Institute, notes he predicted many things. He did not predict his own death uh, yeah. at the age of 61 in 1983, and it was a, just an absolutely devastating moment for the Institute. Herman was the person, he was the connector, he was the he was the embodiment of the Institute. He was the great intellect. That's not, there were extraordinary minds of the Institute, people both on the right and on the left. And, and as Herman grew older, he grew much closer to, uh, and he came to really admire Ronald Reagan, both as a candidate as an, and as a president, for both embodying Herman's views on defense and on the importance of missile defense, which Herman really championed right. in the 70s and early 80s, uh, and also because of his views on, on tax cuts. Um, but Herman was was he was somebody who couldn't quite be typecast. Uh, at the end of the day, he was certainly no social conservative, uh, and he was someone who always had this enfant terrible side about him that he he didn't want to be fit into a into a uh, you know, stereotyped or typecast in some way. So, um, get an incredible penchant for for jokes at all the. Uh, you know about uh, you know for example you know would a uh, you know in the aftermath of a nuclear war would a uh, you know would a mother love her you know, after radioactive fallout would a mother love her two headed son more than her one headed son I mean sort of the jokes that would make most people cringe he, he I mean he had this ability to sort of formulate things in just devastating ways that uh, and and quite humorous ways as well that really kept rapt attention but. He was anything but polite and and, and, and right. wonky in a sort of normal. No, he, he way. was he was a bit controversial and he was a bit of a provocateur. But he also, as you laid out, left an incredible legacy of of uh, thought and and, uh, um, and and the institute. So the institute, moving on in in, in the history, it, you know, obviously pro- had a difficult time. You joined in ninety one. Yeah. Um, but the legacy of Herman Kahn lived on. Uh, and and tell us what the institute is doing today sure. uh, and maybe give a, give our listeners a little understanding of what a, a think tank is i think sure. if you're listening to the, what you just said you can kind of figure it out but we hear that term a lot how is a think tank different than say uh you know a university or uh, or uh, uh you know some other institution look hudson after herman's death the institute uh, which was then chaired by pete dupont the former de- governor of delaware uh, we were given a generous offer by the Lilly Endowment, which is one of the largest philanthropies in the country, to move the Institute to Indianapolis from New York. The year before, the Baltimore Colts had moved to Indianapolis. Indianapolis was setting up a major university downtown, and the City Fathers wanted to recruit a a policy organization. We moved out there. We were based in Indianapolis from 94 until 2004. We had extraordinary leaders of the Institute there. Uh, Tom Bell uh, went on to a distinguished career in business. Mitch Daniels, who later went on to become governor of Indiana, director of the Office of Management and Budget, Les Lankowski, they each brought a different style right. to run in the Institute. Um, Tom was in the immediate aftermath of, 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 of uh, Herman's passing. Mitch 
was someone who very much tried to recreate Herman by bringing together the different parts of what Herman had worked on, uh, different kinds of visionaries to do that. And uh, Les really brought us to play a critical role on domestic policy. And under Les's leadership, we developed the Wisconsin Works Welfare Reform Project that became the model for national welfare reform. We developed the concept of our charter schools, and we had a deep impact on domestic policy. Uh, today, the Institute is uh, based here in Washington. We, uh, we, have, we, we, are, we remain Herman's Institute in, 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 in lots of different ways. We still uh, are, we really do exist at that intersection of policy, strategy, and technology looking uh, at the challenges to our national security, thinking through security landscapes. Uh, and we do it, but we do it as a think tank. We do it, we, we're, you know, Herman was much more of a longer-term thinker. We do things uh, in much more policy-time-relevant ways, and that's, I think, the difference between yeah. a university and a think tank. A university does research for the sake of research. Our interest is not to produce a book that has lots of footnotes that scholars are going to find 50 years from now uh, and look at and think, aha, this was an interesting concept. Our idea really is to move the policy needle. And so what we do is we hire the best possible minds to uh, work on uh, critical policy challenges. Uh, we, um, and and, and we, we, do the, we do all we can to make sure that uh, the work we do, the research we do, a lot of which draws inspiration from Herman in terms of uh, technology, natural resources, uh, uh, the future of uh, the developing world, uh, that the kind of work we do that we, we really work to get into the hands of, of, of our government in terms of getting it right up to Capitol Hill, briefing members of the House and Senate, briefing people in the Trump administration, and when relevant, briefing leaders around the world. And we have yeah, I think it's something that's really quite extraordinary and unique about Hudson. Herman made Hudson really into an internationalist think tank early on, that uh, he spent his time in Japan, he spent his time in, in Singapore and South Korea, uh, he spent his time in Latin America and in Europe. We had, we had offices around the globe in those days. And today, we, uh, our experts, we spend a significant amount of time going around the world, meeting with officials, briefing them on key issues, uh, helping to discern global policy trends and understand uh, where the United States is coming from on critical issues. But we, we come with very clear policy prescriptions on, say, how to handle uh, the rise of China or uh, how to handle the threat posed by North Korea. I mean, I mean, in Hudson's mission statement, it is to promote American leadership. And, uh, you know, a lot of think in the think tank world here in Washington um, and, and beyond, you know, think tanks kind of stake out p places on the uh, ideological spectrum. And, and as you've noted, you know, uh, Hudson here is, is towards the center right and, and um, looks for pragmatic solutions for these things. Yeah, uh, yeah pragmatic solutions, we're not driven by an ideology. So right. We're not driven by pragmatism per se. We're driven by a notion that this is an idea that can work and that this is how you this is this is a way to move the ball forward, exactly and so right. and so so and I think our ideas today remain as unconventional. Uh, they are certainly unconventional within the think tank world, uh, and um, you know we I think we speak with a, with a clarity that Herman spoke with. 
you know, but we're we're doing within a policy framework. We're right. So it's 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 uh, and and look, I have to say it's you know I, as I look back at you know I've been here with the exception of about five years now going since 1991, what 27 years at Hudson Institute uh, altogether. Um, taking out, you know, it's really 22 of the 27 I've been here. Yeah. No, and I, we are now, we have, we have become, you know, we've clearly become one of the most influential think tanks in Washington. We've gone, as I say, for a British football team, we've gone from second division to first division. <laughs> Premier you know, we, League. We were, yeah, we, were, yeah we, we would have been relegated for a number of years. We're back. We're in Premier League. And uh, to me, what's incredible is it are the kinds of people that come to us on a daily basis uh, for policy suggestions, whether from the Trump administration, from governments overseas, and they know that they they get straightforward, clear-sighted, uh, original analysis from us about pressing policy challenges, uh, whether it be on trade, whether it be on national security, uh, whether it be uh, on economics uh, um, and other critical issues. Do you want to, uh, any recent examples of places where Hudson has in, has had some influence that you look? We've want to share? Uh, sure like. Uh, our colleague Arthur Herman has taken the lead in developing a concept called boost phase missile defense. The idea is to place uh, missile defense uh, sensors, anti-missile systems, or anti anti-missile systems on uh, UAV drones, and the idea is to place them in the Sea of Japan in international waters off of North Korea. So that if the North Koreans decide to launch a, a nuclear weapon. Or an ICBM, we could destroy that kind of an ICBM within the first 200 seconds. Which is, it's, he notes, the most vulnerable time when it's moving the slowest, when they're putting off the biggest heat signature, and when it's easiest to hit. Exactly. And so the idea is this would really dramatically increase the odds that we would be able to knock down a missile. And obviously, we're all for THAAD, we're for Aegis, and we're for space-based defense. But having a boost phase is, is, is where you can do the most damage the most quickly and it just increases your odds if unlikely if you'd miss at boost phase, but if you do, you've, you've then got the odds of uh, all the other kinds of, of missile defense. And we've been completely for space-based missile defense, which uh, another colleague, uh, Rebecca Heinrichs, has been championing. These ideas are in the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, they're going to move forward, and it's really exciting when you come up with concrete ideas and you see something that begins with a couple of people talking around the table, you know, what about putting, you know, I think I was at the original conversation, which was between Bill Schneider who's a legendary figure here at Hudson, who joined Hudson on the day that the Soviet troops rolled into uh, Czechoslovakia. I think it was August 20th, 1968. Wow. And Bill has been, Bill left to become Undersecretary of State for Science and Technology Policy in the uh, Bush, admi- in, the, in the Reagan, Reagan administration. Yeah. He'd been an OMB in the Reagan administration, worked for Senator Jim Buckley as his uh, foreign policy um, um, legislative assistant. And, 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 uh, well, you see, you see these these minds in action, thinking through problems, trying to think through creative ways to to handle them. It's it's really something. Um, colleague Tom Dusterberg, who's a trade expert, has been uh, trying to figure out ways that Americans and uh, Europeans uh, and the Japanese can work together to deal with the challenge posed by uh, Chinese uh, predatory trade practices, including intellectual property theft. And Tom, we Tom published a paper in conjunction with uh, the. Konrad Adenauer Stiftung, which is the big um, foundation of the Christian Democrats in uh, in uh, Germany, and the paper we he's briefed it to German officials, to American officials, to Japanese officials with significant interest. And so, 
it, and, 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 and look, this is a very uncertain policy moment that we're living in, kind of the old ways of doing policy, which were on sl- slow time, where presidents would appoint commissions to, to come up with decisions. Those days are gone. President Trump has really compressed the time frame in which decisions are made. He is uh, someone who instinctively has disdain for uh, for the conventional wisdom and for the way that policy people think of, of problems. And it's actually, for us, it's been a remarkable time because we recognize the shortcomings of the conventional wisdom of the the kind of the you know, the blinders that Herman thought people had, and the the inability to think creatively, and so at a moment like this, where there's an opportunity to think creatively, where there's an openness to cr- creative ideas, and there, there's uncertainty um, both here and and among how our allies perceive the United States, it's been very it's been, well, well, it's been yeah. a wonderful moment for us to to uh, deepen our our contacts and to be really known as a, a credible, reliable voice on the the big geopolitical challenges of our day. Yeah, uh, Trump's disruptive uh, style and, and has given a lot of opportunities uh, where folks, particularly international, but many within the D.C. policy community are, are looking for uh, kind of disruptive approaches or unconventional, and, and I think you captured that well. So if you're a, if you're a scholar here at Hudson, one of our experts, does Hudson take institutional positions, or why don't you talk a little bit about how the ac- kind of the academic freedom, I'd say sure. with air quotes, works at a look, place we, like we, a think look, tank? We, we, look, we, the think tanks have different business models, okay? I can use the word business model. There's some, many of them are top-down driven, where management decides these are the five or ten policy issues we're going to do, and they dole out assignments to the senior scholars and the junior scholars, and the, it comes together like an orchestra. Um, that's Hudson doesn't quite operate in that way. We hire relatively senior talent. We trust that talent. Uh, we give that talent the intellectual freedom to do policy-based work. And we mean policy-based work. It's research and policy-based work on, on critical issues. And uh, you know, we, it doesn't mean you can publish on anything as a Hudson Scholar, but if you're doing policy-based work that has a research component to it uh, and it's serious, uh, that's what we want, and uh, so we 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 you know, and our our our, our scholars are, they're they're entrepreneurial. These are people who are incredibly smart, who know how to move legislation or ideas through the policy process. They know how to frame ideas in a way that that is user friendly to people who are looking for concepts. And uh, you know, we just we trust them. And it, look, I, I think back to. Mike Duran joined Hudson, I think, at about 2015, I guess it was. Yeah, 15, he came right. from Brookings. And Mike uh, sat down and wrote up an article. He had an instinct that uh, President Obama, in, his, in, his, in seeking a deal with the Iranians, wasn't interested in, in controlling the Iranian nuclear program so much as he was interested in trying to bring, to, to, uh, bring the Iranians, in a sense, back into uh, – uh, the world of international politics, and to get the Iranians to serve in a way as a counterbalance against America's Sunni allies in the Middle East, uh, who President Obama blamed for the rise of uh, ISIS, and I think at the end of the day, also as a counterbalance to Israel, in all honesty. And Mike right. wrote an absolutely brilliant piece uh, for Mosaic magazine called Iran- Obama's Secret Iran Strategy, which delved into some of the things the president had been saying about the what he intended to do about the Iran deal. Some of the things the president's uh, deputy national security advisor, Ben Rhodes, had said uh, in, in, in settings behind closed doors about what the president was doing that sort of proved this. The article 
was an immense hit. It took off like our, it was downloaded a few hundred thousand times in the first week. It was featured in the Drudge Report, and it was a serious, lengthy right. piece, you know, 20 pages or so. And uh, it just made the case that uh, the president was not seeking to control the Iranian nuclear program, but he wanted to, to, to really have a pivot of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. The piece was read by uh, policy leaders around the world. It was read by... Uh, the White House. Uh, the White House, yeah. by President Obama himself, <laughs> right. as we learned, by, by Prime Minister Netanyahu, by uh, French President uh, Hollande, uh, uh, by uh, dozens of, of – of, uh, by leaders in the Gulf. Uh, and because it was, it, it was deeply analytic and uh, made a, a convincing case. And I think it, from the outset it shaped the way that uh, people understood uh, the, the Iran deal from the outset – um, and it proved prescient. I mean, it proved was, absolutely prescient, yeah. And, 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 it's, and it's the kind of work we do really well. Uh, uh, our colleagues, uh, Hill, Fratkin, and Scooter Libby also published a piece in the Wall Street Journal at the time that looked at the question of, of the sunset clauses in the, in the Iran deal that highlighted that issue. And uh, so we, we – you know, the kinds of things we do. So 2016, I guess, uh, we had – we did a workshop uh, – no, it was 2015, I guess. We did a workshop on transatlantic uh, intelligence cooperation. Uh, we do workshops with, with – this is with a European partner, the Wilfrid Martin Center in Brussels, and there were two speakers at this workshop. One was a young member of Congress from Kansas named Mike Pompeo, and the other was a somewhat older member of the European Parliament named, and a vice commissioner of the European Parliament uh, – or vice commissioner uh, of the European Commission named um, – uh, Antonio Tajani. Tajani's gone on to become the president of the European Parliament, a big figure in Europe. And, of course, uh, Pompeo has gone on to be CIA director and, uh, and uh, secretary of state. And at the end of the, uh, the event, Pompeo had to get up early because he said he had to go catch a plane to Vienna to go to the IAEA to talk about the Iran deal. During that trip, he and uh, his good friend, Senator Tom Cotton, uh, discovered the existence of these secret codicils that the Obama administration had denied, which further proved the point that uh, Mike Duran made, but but also uh, when they came back, uh, Tom Cotton, who was very impressed with Mike's piece and distributed it in the Senate, uh, came to Hudson and gave a talk about the, uh, the, the the secret codicils and what what they implied for the deal. So, and that's sort of where we like to be: is you take the kind of high level analysis, you get it in the hands of policymakers, you move the needle, you you you, you don't teach them what to think; you sort of teach them how to think about critical issues and. Uh, it's uh, Herman had this ex- had this great expression that uh, uh, he thought pol- good policy work expands the policy imagination, and I think we still do that today. Well, I think that's a, a great way to conclude that example and and bringing it back to to the founder of this great institution, uh, Herman Kahn himself. Ken, we want to thank you for joining us today. I'm sure we'll have you back uh, uh, in the future. Our, our future episodes are going to delve. Uh, more specifically into, into policy areas to help educate our listeners uh, on, on uh, things that they care about. But I think it was great to get an overview of Hudson and, and people understand kind of where this institute started, why it exists, and why it's having the influence it is today. So uh, I want to thank our listeners again for downloading the podcast today. Um, please subscribe and, and tell your friends about us. Ken, thanks again for joining us. And uh, if you have any uh, questions or comments, please don't hesitate to contact us at policytalk at hudson.org. That's policytalk at hudson.org. From all of us here in Washington, D.C. at the Hudson Institute, uh, I want to thank you for listening. I'm Brian Blake. Good day.